Hello from the future. Today's discussion was recorded earlier this month, but as of this week, many of you in the horror community may have heard the news that Melissa Barrera has been fired from the upcoming production of Scream 7 in light of her public support of Palestine. Our episodes are not always recorded and released around the same time, but we felt that it would be remiss to post weekly conversations about the world of horror without this news being mentioned. In solidarity with not only Melissa Barrera, but of course more obviously the people of Palestine, we wanted to share with our listeners the link to Palestinian Children's Relief Fund and urge anyone who has the means to help to donate. The link is available in our official Instagram bio, as well as highlighted in our link tree, along with other resources about what you can do to help. Welcome back to What's Your Favorite Scary Movie? I'm Verona. I'm Sarah. And today, I'm so excited to finally announce that we are doing The Black Phone. Cannot wait to check this off of the list (laughs) once and for all. I'm not going to stop tormenting you, regardless that it's been checked off. So, we've had a bit of a running joke here for months now with this movie, We first suggested it because we both have watched this movie before, like once or twice. I think you once, me twice. And we were like, this is a really good movie. This would be really good to do on the pod. And then it just became a thing where every time Sarah was like, do you have any movies that we should add to the list? I'd be like, oh, you know what we should do? The Black Phone. And every time she would fall for it. Every single time. Or I would just randomly be like, you know what movie we should do? And she'd be so excited. She'd be like, oh my god, what? And I'd be like, the black phone. And she'd get so fucking mad at me. And so it's a monumentous occasion that we are finally doing the black phone. But I'm still going to torment her with it. I don't think she understands this. Like, I'm not going to stop this bit. If anything, I'm going to make it worse now that we've actually done it. The real problem, though, is that you got really good at it, and it really did, like, sneak up on me. Like, there was some times when I didn't fall for it, and other times where I really fell so hard face first into the joke, to the point where we would be finishing a Babylon rewatch, and you'd be like, oh my god, this just reminded me. Do you know what I was gonna say? And I was like, what? And you're like, we should do the black phone on the podcast. I had to start getting creative, because you were starting to, like, pick up on it. So I would just do it at the most random times. And it always worked. And it was always funny. To me, at least. Like, I would be sitting there in tears. I can be a good sport about it. Like, I will say, it was a really funny bit. Like, because, like I said, I fucking kept falling for it. I can't even be mad about it. It was just, it was so good. I'm going to continue it still. And especially with the sequel coming out. I need the sequel. I know we're not going to get the sequel for, like, a few years. I can't wait for it to come out because, oh my god, then I'm just going to start being like, we should do a double feature of the Black Phone and the Black Phone too. So good. Such a good... I love a bit. I love committing to a bit. I love running a bit into the ground because it always comes back around again and is funny. To me, this has never stopped being funny. 2025 is the Black Phone too. Damn, we got two years. A year and a month. Holy shit, we're in, like, middle of November. We're almost done with this year. 2023 went by very, very quickly. It did. Not one month of this year that dragged by. Well, maybe, like, a little bit in the summer, but, like, still, it was still, like, an accelerated 
drag, if that makes sense. I didn't even think that it dragged. I think it just blurred in the summer. Yeah. I was forgetting what month it is all the time, but I definitely feel like it's still shot by really quickly. This whole year has, honestly. I'm like, we're still in January, right? Because, like, it doesn't make sense that it was... Yeah. It's been six months now since we've seen each other. That doesn't make sense to me. We saw each other, like, yesterday. Honestly... With Horror Night specifically, like, those two, three months went by so fucking fast. All blurred, which is why I'm like, oh, we're in the middle of November now. I'm very confused by that because it was just September yesterday. like that. And November especially is going by fast because I was like, yeah, we're on, like, November 5th, maybe the 8th at most. 16? No. Thanksgiving is next week. My brain, this is so funny. I've been here for, I've lived in the States for three years now. It'll be four years in January. I'm still like, Thanksgiving's in October. Like, out of all of the things that we don't celebrate at the same time in Canada, I don't know why Thanksgiving is what my brain is stuck on. I think it's because of that there's holidays in between in Canada and there isn't like here. Like, it goes like Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas here. So my brain like forgets about thanksgiving because i'm like after halloween is christmas anyway let's talk about the black phone i'm excited um first off this is one of my favorite tweets or my favorite thoughts that i've ever had but i did tweet it like forever ago and i I, you agree because we've discussed this ethan hawk is bloomhouse's darling yes we talked about this how it reminded us of like old hollywood when like actors were like contractually obligated to like one studio i'm like that's ethan hawk with bloomhouse (laughs) and I love it. I want it to stay that way. Bloomhouse is very hit or miss, but I still enjoy the misses to an extent. Fuck you, Fantasy Island. Sorry. But (laughs) most other things are great from Bloomhouse. I love the opening credit sequence. I like the opening, like the opening shots in general. Like it really establishes everything super beautifully, like very quickly. You're like really immersed in the time period from the second it opens. That being said, like the title sequence, like the opening credit sequence specifically though, that's kind of like more home video style is so pretty and it's so unsettling, but also nostalgic at the same time and warm feeling. And it gives me such a similar feeling in like my gut as those like childhood dream core slideshows that people make on like TikTok (laughs) that show kind of old like grainy photos of bedrooms and hallways in like people's houses and stuff like not quite liminal space but like unsettling nostalgia vibe and that's the exact vibe I get from this opening credit sequence it's so creepy and it's so good I remember reading this when I first watched this because I was like this had to have been shot like on film right um certain sequences like those were shot on eight millimeter films using a super eight camera which is why they look so of it's time is because of that. But I think even the parts that they didn't use that, like where they just use like, you know, the regular cameras, they did so well. I was saying this at the beginning, it really immerses you in that time period because of the quality of the camera and the way that they shoot it and also the costuming. Because a lot of the times when you try to do a period piece and you're using obviously modern clothing, but also just like modern technology like cameras, I can't quite get into it. I'm like, this is a 2020 movie trying to do the 80s or 90s or 70s or whatever decade. I'm like, that's what it's trying to emulate. But I never fully can get into it. Whereas this one, I'm like, no, I can... I can feel, I can feel that it's the 70s. You mentioned Fear Street as one of the examples of someone not quite doing it right. And it's so funny because like you and your eternal biblical beef with the Fear Street movies. But 
I would also say this one's going to sound a little blasphemous, but I would also say that another example of it not quite being immersive because it's a little too smooth looking and bright and fresh looking is going to be Stranger Things. I was thinking that too. I really like Stranger Things. So that's not like a criticism about how well they did at like making a period piece. But just in terms of like, it just looks so nice because we have the technology to make it look nice. And therefore it kind of loses a little bit of that immersion. No, exactly that. That's exactly what I was thinking. Because I feel like with Stranger Things, the reason why you're reminded that it's the 80s is because of like the music or like the references or things that are already in it, not so much like the style of it. Like, yeah, you're looking at it and you're like, yeah, like the hair, obviously that's 80s. Like some of the clothing, yeah, 80s. But like in terms of like the quality, this doesn't feel like 80s. Because I remember someone, I think it was on Twitter, was talking about how like we will never fully get something that feels like an 80s movie again because of you could really only capture it in that time period. And also... The camera quality. It's always the camera quality. Like, that is what sticks out the most. The color grading in the black phone, I think, helped a lot, too, as well. Because I had said, you you said, you were like, oh, this feels, I forgot how great this feels, like, immediately when you get into it. And I said, yeah, I immediately went to, like, adjust my brightness. Because I thought that, I was like, oh, something's fucked up. When I watch something like Stranger Things, or even something like Fear Street, like, regardless of whether I really like the product or not, um... When I watch that kind of stuff, if it's done correctly with the costuming and the music and whatever, I can tell that it's realistic enough. Like my brain will believe that I'm watching a group of people in that time period, but it's not the same immersion that I get from the black phone where I literally shut off the movie and I looked around and I was like, holy fuck, I totally forgot the world doesn't look like that anymore. Yeah, no, exactly that. Fuck the Fear Street movies. You know who's always at the fucking scene of the crime with those things, who the culprit is? Netflix. Fucking Netflix originals. Fuck you, Netflix. I'm so angry. You unleashed Fear Street onto the world, and now you're not stopping. You're continuing. You're putting out another movie just because you fucking hate me specifically. This is a slight on me. I know it. I'm never getting hired at Netflix ever. (laughs) I was just going to say, we're never getting that Netflix sponsorship. I don't want it. Just kidding. I love Stranger Things and they know that. One of the things here that I think I really like that's established really early on in this movie, obviously the movie gets into showing explicitly childhood violence, but I do like that it's set up in a way that they're able to establish this is an abusive household without showing you the abuse at first. It reminded me a lot of how they did it in The Invisible Man, which I talk about all the time, about how just much I love that they did it that way. But of course, this obviously changes into then it's showing it explicitly because that's kind of the point of the movie. It wouldn't really work if they didn't. I think that it's more challenging than people realize to creatively show abuse without showing abuse but once you do it correctly like there's no mistaking it like everyone instinctually recognizes it even if you've never been in that situation it's just so instinctually recognizable so I really liked how they set it up just with everyone trying to be very quiet in the house like just apologetic and like meek trying to stay out of each other's way is just very good because obviously his home dynamic is meant to kind of mirror his situation with the grabber that scene where he's watching the horror movie and his dad is asleep in the room next to him and he keeps like looking back to check that he's asleep is like a direct parallel to later when he's trying to escape and the grabber is asleep in the chair so good i honestly think they could have kind of 
played into that more, like the parallels. But I understand why they didn't, because it would have felt a little like too on the nose, like spoon feedy. So I understand why they didn't. But like, this is such a good movie. I really don't get why people didn't like this one. I expected it to be very mild when I saw it, which is what's funny to me. I expected it to be mild because I saw such mixed reviews when it came out from specifically from horror fans. And so in my head, I just assumed like, oh, maybe it didn't push far enough because that's usually why if it's like a middle ground review that I see as like the average, then I'm usually what ends up being the culprit is that a lot of people just thought it was a really good movie. And a lot of people were like, I don't like it because it wasn't dark enough or it wasn't scary enough. But that was not the case. When I was first seeing reviews for it, it was very mixed bag. Like some people loved it and some people hated it. And it was just very weird. And after seeing it, I'm like, I don't understand the hate for it. Like I could understand some parts where you're like, oh, I wish they like did this differently or like this little bit, you know? I just want to talk about how the McGraw sisters are like new horror siblings. I love seeing them in things. They're both such incredible actresses and I'm so excited to see them in more things forever. Madeline McGraw is in this one. And then Violet McGraw is in Megan and Haunting of Hill House. Incredible child actors. Honestly, all the kids in this did really good, but specifically Gwen and Finney. I love Gwen. What an iconic character. What a like, what personality in a character with so little space to really show a super dynamic personality. Like there's just so many sides to her and there's she's a very interesting character she's like such a real person i have a little piece of trivia for you love i can't wait to hear it a couple of pieces of trivia actually okay to sprinkle in so jason blum sent the director a display case with a black phone in it as like his way of it was like a gift to go with green lighting the film and derrickson the director he's moving at the time around production i believe and jason bloom had a actual black phone mounted in the basement of the new house without his knowledge and then called him to it that is so when he was moved in i would freak the fuck out like genuinely the perfect prank the phone was also operational in that it was a direct line to jason bloom's cell phone if he picked up the phone off the cradle, it would call his cell phone, which is really cool. I'm going to do that in your home. I'm going to install a phone. And the only thing that it goes to is my phone. So we get the intro to your favorite character really early on. Robin, one of the coolest characters like of all time. I love him. I wish we could have gotten more of him in this movie. And I was telling Sarah at the end of the movie, I was like, for the sequel, I hope they bring him back. Just like no explanation. Just like he's alive. We don't we don't need him to be dead. He can just come back. He came to Horror Nights and so did, I believe, the main kid who plays Finny, like separately. But everyone said that like the guy who played Robin was like so cool and so nice and just like really happy to be there. And I was like, that's always so cool to hear. Especially because it was during the SAG strikes. So obviously they couldn't talk about being there because part of it was a Bloomhouse display with the black phone. So I'm sure that was really cool to see for them. It's always nice to hear that like actors are like nice people. Something somebody pointed out was with the characters' names all being DC heroes, but Vance isn't one. So I'm not sure. Wait, what? There's a theory that all of the kid-like victims are named after DC heroes, but Vance isn't. So I don't think like that that really holds any water, but it would be cool. That's a really good saying. Thank you. I really liked that detail of Robin dressing his wounds in the school bathroom with like school supplies. That like shitty brown paper towel that's in 
school dispensers and like wrapping his knuckles and then using like masking tape. Yeah. Like just a badass. What a badass little child. He's like what, 12 maybe at the most and still like cooler than I ever will be. I love how defensive he was over him just and very casually just being like you fuck with Finn like I'll fuck with you, basically. Just very casual, and then just left. I really liked the amount of time that was spent establishing all of the individual kids' characters in a way that didn't really feel like they were just setting up later stuff to be able to do callbacks to. It kind of really hammered home the point, like, these are kids, like, these these were just kids, and they had lives, and they went to school, and they had, like, their interests and their hobbies, and they played sports, and they liked going to see horror movies at the drive-in, and, like, that was just so taken from them. I think that so often in horror movies that are about children or like centering children, it often doesn't really feel like the work is done properly to establish them as victims that you should care about. Because I think that people kind of assume that that instinct of feeling sad to see like this young innocent thing get hurt is going to be enough, like just to hit really hard. It's not even an issue of being desensitized. For some reason, just... The ability to have my brain kick in when I watch a movie and I think like, this is a movie. None of this is real, it's a movie. So you have to sell that movie to me to make me give a shit about those characters. Like, I feel upset about the idea of a child getting hurt or dying regardless of whether I know anything about that child when it's in real life. When I hear about a child who's a total stranger getting hurt, I'm like, that's fucking devastating. My brain knows that I'm watching a movie, so you need to establish these child characters the same way that you would establish adult characters, or like, I don't really give a shit. I feel like people just don't put the work in to like make child characters that have any trait about them other than the fact that like they're a kid. They might have like an interest or two. They might be like, oh, this is a kid and like he likes movies. Like, but okay, like I, you need to kind of give me an actual character out of it the way that you would anyone else. So I love how much time and care this movie spent on establishing them as, as whole characters and also tying it into a real world feeling. The way that it would show the kid after the phone call, like, or after he had communicated with them, it would show the home videos of that child from when they were a baby up until they got taken. I was crying. I cried the first time like a fucking baby because it blindsided me and then this time I like realized it was gonna start happening again I was like oh my god I totally forgot that this happens after he's like done talking to one of them and I'm like I'm just gonna lose it like I can't I think a big reason why people not that they don't care but that they like don't connect with kids dying in horror movies is because they're like oh it's a horror movie this is expected anyways because they kind of feel the same about anyone like regardless like when they die in a horror movie they're just kind of like yeah that's what I came here to see moving on Whereas this one like really hits because not only kids, but also well-established kids, like you said. And yeah, especially those sequences after, because it's kind of showing you like, this is what he robbed of them and their family. Not only their past, but also like all of their future, which is so devastating. This movie could have very easily strayed away from horror and just been straight up a sad drama because the subject matter. But we talked about this before. There's so much sadness in horror, like there's no way around it. And it's very hard to like toe that line. And they did it very well in this one where it makes you very sad, but also like kind of scared. Scott Derrickson has talked kind of at length about his own childhood experiences and like what was going on in the world, but also what was going on like in his 
small circle at the time. The child abuse back then was pretty common anyway. Like it was very normal. People were doing it in public. Nobody cared. On top of that, Scott Derrickson was growing up around the same time that Bundy was on the loose, as well as the Manson family murders. And then also Scott Derrickson's neighbor was murdered. So like he said that he associates childhood with fear, never feeling comfortable, not feeling like safe, whether it was, you know, in your home or your school or because there were serial killers. Like you didn't know if it was going to be some trusted adult that would be terrible to you or if like you were going to have these like violence incidences in public or in your school. And then to kind of like come home and turn on the news and it's like, by the way, lock your doors because there are serial killers out there. Just like a whole childhood where the only thing that you can look back on and think about it is that feeling of constant paranoia. And that's what was the inspiration for making this so heavily like focused on childhood fear and like childhood violence. He associates childhood with fear. We know I fucking love movies that have to do with childhood and especially childhood trauma. Hello, It and It Chapter 2 stand right here. I feel like horror movies dealing with children can be so much scarier because when you're a kid everything is so much scarier because most things are new to you and you are so vulnerable and like unprotected that shit can be terrifying but also at the same time like having children in horror movies of course like kind of limits you because you can't do like this gratuitous violence and like really really fucked up shit (laughs) to kids There's kind of, I don't want to say time and place for when you can be terrible to kids in movies, but I just mean you can kind of tell from the vibe and like the themes what is going to be going on with kids in the horror movie that you're watching. Like I said, when I was watching Evil Dead Rise, I could tell like very quickly on based on how they were showing the kids and how they were establishing them as individuals and how they were going to fit in with the story. I immediately was like, well, the little one's not going to die. Yeah. Like, I already, like, I'm aware that that's not going to happen. I know that this isn't the kind of story where that would happen. So you've, like, shot yourself in the foot by making that so obvious to begin with. Whereas something that's been really controversial going around horror Twitter lately is the new Terrifier 3 that is coming out that implies from the trailer, I believe, that a young child might be one of the victims. And, of course, Terrifier is an extremely gratuitous, violent, gory franchise. So it wouldn't be... Like, when I say, like, there would be violence to a child, I mean, like, brutally, explicitly slaughtered on screen. Which people are obviously having mixed reactions to. I mean, there's also a pretty young kid in Terrifier 2, and I was like, he could... He could go at any minute, really, in a really fucked up way. I knew that going in watching it. When you're going into a movie and you already kind of know what the movie is like, you should kind of be prepared for that, unfortunately. Like, going into, like, a Bloomhouse movie, you know that, like, especially, like, a PG-13 Bloomhouse movie, you know that nothing is going to be, like, super graphic, super violent towards anyone, but especially towards a child versus, like, the Terrifier franchise. Those are kind of, like, all bets are off. Anything could happen to anyone. Since you know what you're getting into, you just kind of have to be at its mercy. I just literally had a note about Robin fucking roundhouse kicking Moose in the face. Like, that's just nuts. Like, fully Chuck Norris, like, roundhouse head-level kick to that kid. He's, like, taller than Robin. Yeah. I had a thing. The dad... All love to him was getting eaten the fuck up by these child actors. Like, that's... Oh my god, they were so good. Like, that scene where he's, like, beating Gwen, and then she just, like, has that whole scene. Oh my god. I was like, sorry, dude, but, like, she is 
so outshining you right now, like so hard. Like you need to step it way up. I like can't get over her enough. First of all, her insults to people, so creative, so good. I love when they let children swear. It's so funny to me. And like, she just did it any possible moment. And then beating like the fuck out of those guys. Like she brained that dude with a rock and then just sat next to him chilling after like one of them kicked the shit out of her. That happened to my friend Jughead Jones. That happened to my friend Jughead Jones. (laughs) My favorite part of this movie, probably her going to her little prayer corner and just going, Jesus, what the fuck? She was so much fun. I wrote so many of her quotes down. Like just that was like a whole note every time she opened her mouth to say anything. I also had a little note on here about this was another trivia that somebody on IMDb pointed out in the movie Sinister, also by writer-director Scott Derrickson, also starring Ethan Hawke and James Ransom. The, the daughter draws on the walls in her bedroom. And one of the things that she draws is a man holding a bunch of black balloons. Just very cool little detail. That's really cool. I like that a lot. I love when like writers and directors put like little Easter eggs in their movies. And especially this, I wonder if they like already had the black phone like planned and they did that on purpose or if it was just one of those things. I have a note that just says, Ethan Hawke is so fine. How irritating. No, genuinely though, that scene where he was like sitting there shirtless, that's when I texted you. I was like, why he kind of... <laughs> He's a good looking man. He is. I love Ethan Hawke. This is not a character that I thirst over. No. And I don't even mean from like a moral standpoint, because like I know we don't, obviously. But I also like, I don't find this character like even physically very attractive. I think I don't like the, I don't find the voice hot. The voice is so creepy. I have that in The voice here, is really creepy. Like three times. I have three different notes just being like, his voice is so scary. It's so creepy. It's so good. I think Ethan Hawke is just a fantastic actor. Just as a disclaimer, I don't mean that there should have been anything to thirst after with this character. I more so meant anything about him that could have been twisted into something hot. Like, like what everyone does with Ghostface. Like, you get it. Yeah. Also, people were thirsting the fuck after him at Horror Nights. I don't know if you saw those TikToks. The man who was playing him basically could no longer pose for pictures or videos because of how weird people, specifically women, were being towards him. Some even touched him. It was weird. And I was like, what is wrong with you guys? His face, he's fully covered. He was wearing the mask, the sunglasses, and the top hat. It was just because he had like really big muscles. Everyone was trying to fuck that man. Speaking of his voice, the different tones that he used reminded me a lot of Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker. The vibes were very much like chaos bubbling under the surface, but like contained keeps it somewhat together so that you're always, always tense around him. Regardless of how calm he's being, you're so scared. Ethan Hawke for the Joker next. I feel like it could work. Oh. I feel like it could work. See, now there's a character I can thirst over. Exactly. Oh, I could talk about Ethan Hawke literally forever. I am obsessed with that man. I love that man. I think he is such an incredible actor, like in everything he's ever been in. I have a note on here that just says, James Ransom jump scare. The first time I was watching this movie, I wasn't prepared for that. And I was in a very vulnerable state. I'm pretty sure I just rewatched the It movies and I was like... (gasps) He's there. But I did text you during his death suit and said, happened to my friend Eddie Kasbrack, impaled after he thought he caught the big bad, dies alone underground. I really like his character in this. I just, I love a cokehead character, like, every time. They'll always be a standout to me. <laughs> Especially when they're, like, doing the cocaine as they're, like, solving everything. 
I always make this joke. Whenever someone is literally like high on coke in a movie, I'm always like, that's us when we're manic. And it is. But that moment where he's like yep. snorting it and then all the pieces start coming together and he's like, oh my God. I was like, that's us. That's us planning the podcast. One of the lines that I wrote down, here he comes down, Finney like gets up and is like, why are you even here then if you're not here to like bring me food or like let me go? And he's like, I just wanted to look at you. And then he looks like, and then he goes, I'll go. And he's like so upset like it's like he hurt his feelings that he didn't want him in there with him and it's so creepy and unsettling i hate it so much you know what other part is so unsettling to me they used it in the trailer a lot because it's like one of the most famous shots from this movie finney says something about like he's gonna scratch up his face and then he does like that pose like with his face he's like oh this face and then like does the pose with his hands his hands and that freak me out so just i don't know how to explain it but that pose and what he does in that moment is so unsettling to me and so scary that every time I see it, I get like genuinely like creeped out. And of course they use that, like all the promo images, all the like trailer spots, like anything, they used that clip because obviously it's perfect. Bruce on the phone continually repeating, your arm is mint, you always had me. It gives me chills. <laughs> so it also creeps me out. I love that that was like a recurring theme with the phone calls is that they would repeat whatever phrase that they needed him to remember to help him get out. So they would just repeat it over and over and over again. And then it like obviously helped him out later. I just love when he's like choking him out with the phone and you can hear them all saying those phrases. This movie is so good. Do people know about this? There's a like the jump scare rather with Billy that scared the fuck out of me the first time we watched it. And it still got me this time. And I knew it was coming. There's a moment after he when he's talking to Billy and Billy is like in the room with him, but he can't see him i like the part where billy walks away from him and there's this shot where they're standing back to back from each other and then billy finishes talking and he, he physically hangs up the phone by pressing on the cradle and then it goes back to finney and he turns around and billy's not there and like the phone is hung up and it's such a good shot and i also liked seeing the look on on billy's face when he hung up because he just is like so defeated and worried these child actors were like they were serving okay they were in their fucking bag with this shit and good for them i love good child actors we've talked about this a lot we're like child actors can really make or break a movie um you were talking about his masks and how he has a bunch of them and i really like the switch from the happy mask to the frowning mask i like that he changed into the frowning mask and then sat there waiting with the belt for finney to try to escape and come up he preemptively was like setting this trap for him so he removed his smiling face and put on his disappointed face. So that would be what Finney saw when he tried to escape and came up to him. Same with when he comes down to try to figure out his name and he's like hidden in the dark. So you can't see what mask he has on. You can't see his face. Is telling him like, oh yeah, this time is different. Like they didn't put your name or picture in the paper to like test him to see if he's going to lie to him. And then Finn does lie to him, of course. And then he steps out from the shadows and you see his face and it's the frowning face. Also just one of, I love a good, very tense, keeps me like on the edge of my seat, holding my breath scene. Like, like Scream 2 when Sydney and Hallie are like in the backseat of the cop car and Ghostface is like pass out and they have to crawl over him. In this one, when Finn is trying to escape while he's asleep in the chair, it is so tense. It is so good. Both of us are like texting each other being like, oh my God, like I literally know what happens, but like, why can't I breathe right now? In that same scene of him getting away 
and then getting caught a second time, you can really see the influence of real life serial killers and how, like I said, Scott Derrickson has talked about how that was an impact on his childhood as well. It's so clear in moments like that where it's like, oh, this was a real thing that happened. I'm thinking of Dahmer when the one kid escaped and then the police brought him right back to him. Is that what you're talking about or no? Yeah, him getting away and being like right back there, like that moment of freedom where it's like so good for one second and then it's over. It felt less like let's exploit some true crime stuff that people might recognize and more so felt like this is something of feeling that I distinctly remember from my own childhood I remember like hearing about like this or hearing about this and then imagining like being in that position and then to make a movie about childhood fear and put someone in that position it's kind of like a more separated way of having some true crime influence that's more so about the memory of the feeling of experiencing a true crime or like, you know, kind of like being in the world when it was happening and hearing about it versus it being about the true crime itself. Yeah, I was just going to say that because like, this is what we need more of. I'm so fucking tired of true crime and like it exploiting these victims, especially without like permission from the victim's families. Fuck you, Ryan Murphy. But this is the perfect way to like marry the two because it doesn't feel exploitative and it doesn't feel like, hey, remember this thing that happened that's super scary? You, you really can't ask people who grew up in the era of so many of these serial killers that it was such a f- like formidable part of so many of their childhoods. You really can't ask them to not be influenced by those feelings in their work and in their art. Because that's how that's how art is made, especially art based on trauma. You can ask that, you know, it's not exploitative because it's not your fucking trauma to exploit, to be like, well, I remember watching the news and like seeing this happen, therefore it's okay. But to use that like really formidable experience to is going to shape how you create art. There are world events from my childhood that are going to shape things that I create, even if it's like unconsciously, they're going to shape how I make things. And it's going to be the same thing for everyone. I just think that Scott Derrickson in his work has found such respectful but still chilling ways of doing that, which I just think is a really great skill for a writer to have and I think that's like super inspiring yeah because it's never like a direct like parallel or a direct thing that happens it's something that's kind of like a fear of it happening rather than the actual event if that makes sense like it's not like he was like studying all of these serial killers and being like okay this is what this person did so I'm gonna put this in there and like so that people know that it's like a reference to Bundy it was more just like all of those experiences and all of those serial killers at the time informed this movie rather than taking like direct inspiration from it like we said we do not fuck with true crime in general you can just do so much more like original and creative things with like fictional serial killers i don't know you can just separate it from real life and not exploit victims and like make it a weird thing especially victims whose families are still alive and like still dealing with that i've just so rarely seen it done in a way that isn't exploitative and then it has been done in a non-exploitative way a few times i don't think it's wrong to talk about current events or you know things that have happened i don't think that that's the worst thing ever but i've practically never seen it done in a way that wasn't disrespectful and when i have some of the stuff like you said like Not so much like leave it alone, nobody talk about it, but I think like some things really should be more reserved for more academic environments. Right now, if you're just kind of farming true crime for content, it just shows me that you don't have an original idea and you can't make anything on your own. You have to use 
real life stories from other people and real life pain rather than being able to come up with anything on your own. I think one of my favorite parts of the movie is Vance's turn to contact. I think seeing it from his point of view and that like weird dreamscape that he's sitting in is so crazy. That POV was so incredible because up until then you you first only got a phone call that we hear one end of the phone call kind of and then we could see a body but Finney couldn't and then the next time Finney could see like an apparition and then to go into like the full just us getting to see the totally other side of the phone Vance being in that like weird dream state of like reliving what had happened and like the arcade and then being in the cop car and hearing Finney through the radio and it was just everything about it was so good it's Bloomhouse sometimes tries to like swing for like a way deeper story than like they actually have the ability to create. For me personally, I know not everyone is going to agree with this, but like Five Nights at Freddy's, I feel like they were trying really hard with a specific storyline and it just was not going any deeper. It was it was all right, but I feel like it was one of those movies where they thought they were being a lot deeper than they actually were. My full Five Nights at Freddy review right now on this episode of the pod because it's not getting its own episode. No. Um, I did also like the movie and I see what you're saying. I did. I liked the movie. I had a lot of fun watching it. I haven't played the games, but I have friends who are like super, super into Five Nights at Freddy's. So I just know like the surface level of it. And what I can gather from why I personally don't think that the movie hit the way I expected it to, which by the way, apparently the fans like really quite liked the movie. If they're happy, then who the fuck cares what I think? Because it wasn't for me. But even then, I liked it. I think from what I can gather, the reason why it didn't hit the same for me and maybe for like whoever it didn't hit for is I think that that story really suits a video game franchise. It's like if they tried to make like a Bioshock Infinite movie, I would hate it probably, even though I think that Bioshock Infinite is like one of the greatest stories ever that I've like ever played in a video game. Um, I think it just lends itself to a different medium than a movie, especially a PG-13 horror movie. I think it just lends itself differently. But it's also not dark enough, in my opinion. It's not dark enough of a story that they could have made an R-rated horror movie out of it. I think that they would have, if they had tried to make Five Nights at Freddy's an R-rated horror movie, I feel like they would have come out with something kind of like Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, or like, you know what I mean? Like, it was just like, I'm like, why did you, you didn't have to do this. Like, this just feels kind of like a little too edgy. But I don't think that a PG-13 horror movie was the greatest medium for Five Nights at Freddy's. I just feel like it's too much story to try to contain to one movie. And I know that it's a planned trilogy. It feels like they tried to shove too much of it into the first movie, but they kind of mostly just put fragments. And maybe it'll all make sense once the full trilogy is out. But as a standalone movie, it didn't fully do what it needed to. But I feel like the next movie is going to be really good. And maybe the one after that is also going to be really good, but it just felt like too much going on at once for me, but also not enough of any of it at the same time. Incredible fucking cast. I love the like three mains, uh, Matthew Lillard, Josh Hutcherson, and Elizabeth Lale. But yeah, it's, it's definitely something that's scarier as a video game because you're supposed to be scared by it because you're the one playing it. And most of it has to do with the fact that like, you know, you're watching the monitors, you're making sure that like, you know, you're controlling the stuff, like turning it off before they get you. That's where most of the fear comes from rather than anything else. I just feel like there's certain video games that like 
they work best as a video game because most of the fear comes from the fact that you are the one controlling it and you are the one playing it. A movie, it's out of your hands. Most games that aren't based on properties that are also already movies or TV shows or books or whatever, like the Spider-Man games, I wouldn't consider this part of them because they're kind of cutscene heavy. The story's pretty linear. But like when it comes to other games, Five Nights, Bioshock Infinite, my favorite game, Layers of Fear, you have to go looking for the lore and you only get it in pieces and you had to go find it yourself, which makes it so much more rewarding when you learn something so small. And I just feel like Five Nights at Freddy's has so much lore. Like I don't know all of it, but like I have, like you do, a lot of friends that are very into it. And so they've explained like a lot of it to me and I'm like, this is really good. And then they're like, by the way, if you want to know more, here's this like nine hour video explaining all of it. And I'm like, wonderful. I'm very into that. I can't wait to watch it. But like, I don't know. I just feel like I would get more enjoyment of the story from the games rather than the movie. But again, I had so much fun watching the movie. It very much felt like a setup to the next movie versus like a good standalone installment. It was like, here's the backstory. This is what you're gonna need for when like the next one comes out. And I'm like, cool, thank you. Again, the horror, I know it's PG-13. I know it's based on like technically like a kid teen video game. The horror just, didn't, it wasn't enough for me. I've seen much scarier PG-13 horror movies. Yeah, and it wasn't the fact that it was like, I wanted like gore and violence. It was the fact that it was very repetitive and I get it. It's based on the video game where like the same things happen, but like, I don't need to see the big scary suit like stop in front of a person and then like it cut to the next scene. And then later we find out, oh, they died. Like, yeah, I know. I could gather that. Like, it's the, it's the same thing over and over and over again. I don't like to watch movies that lean so hard on jump scares as their only scare tactic. But why did this, why did Five Nights have no jump scares practically? Because the whole game, the whole game is jump scares. Why wasn't their jump scares in the oh, movie. Literally. There was like two, I think, but they weren't even like great jump scares. Like, I don't think I felt tense one time watching it. Like I said, still had fun. I was like so chill watching it the whole time. I really expected it to be jump scare heavy because the games are. Same, same. Because I was like, that's most of what the games are. So that's what I was. I also expected more of it to actually take place in, in Freddy's. It's called Five Nights at Freddy's. Why weren't we in there for Five Nights at Freddy's? Speaking of Bloomhouse movies with children. Bloomhouse movies with children that mix CGI and SFX. So sorry, back to the black phone. Thank you for indulging us. Max, axe to the head death, stunning. Absolutely stunning. I was so into it. I'm not a huge fan of CGI. Wish that they would have done that practically. I'm just a staunch CGI replacement hater. But that's just me. But I love, love that. I know that they mentioned in like some interviews that it was really difficult to get a good shot that was going to be an axe into the head in a way that wouldn't have to use any CGI. And I think that the reason why, I don't think they actually ever properly explained it, but if I had to make an educated guess, I would say it's probably because they wanted to do it as continual shot, like because they wanted to have that long panning shot that was continual of him talking, walking, moving, and then get the axe into the back of the head and fall over and die in one long shot, which is, I, I think, why they had to just CGI his the axe like going in and him falling over. I think if they, they, they could have cut it really quickly back and forth, they could have just, you know, fake head been done with it. But yeah. I will say the shot is super effective. I'm glad that that's the direction they went with it. And the truth is, I don't know if I would have even really noticed that it was CGI 
if I wasn't looking for it and I was looking for it and that's how I was like, oh yeah, because as soon as that axe hits him and his head tips forward, the shot ends. So, which was obviously the right choice to make sure you don't have a lot of time to focus on it. But I thought it came out really, really nice. It's another one of those moments where he thinks like he's finally being rescued or he's finally getting away and you have that like tiny sliver of hope and then it's immediately crushed. I feel like that works so well in horror movies because like you feel that tiny sense of relief along with the character but you as the audience know that it can't be the end and then you get to watch the protagonist just like realize that as well. You are so right. We should rewatch The Handmaid's Tale. Exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> what a good lineup of movies today. Black Phone, Better Watch Out, the Asteroid City, Handmaid's Tale. What a lineup for the day. The ankle break when he falls. I usually don't get squicked out by broken bones. It never really bothers me in horror movies, even when it's really gratuitous and gross. I don't know why it doesn't bother me. For some reason, this one kind of always does a little bit. I think it's just because it's just a little too realistic. The shot on the ankle is a little too long and Ethan Hawke is a little too believable. I was like, Ethan Hawke broke his fucking ankle. Somebody help my mans. He broke his ankle in the middle of shooting and they just kept going. Oh, and when he hands him the phone and says it's for you. Love that. I love a good one-liner. Because I feel like a lot of times in horror movies, they try so hard to get like a good one-liner that it just ends up being like corny or cheesy and just not good. And you just kind of cringe at it. You're like, oh, that would have been cooler if you didn't say that. Like we talked about like Scream 5. That's the one I always think of where she's she has two one-liners at the end. And we're always like, they could have cut the one cheesy one, the never fuck with the daughter of a serial killer or something like that. Like, oh my God, I can't think about that line without getting upset. Also, do you know what another good, great fucking example of this would be is, I guess like that we call that epic bad luck. What the fuck are you talking about, Hoffman? That's from Saw 10. For Loser. Seen it. Loser, I hate that what man. What the fuck are you saying? Yeah, just like really annoying one-liners also there was one in it's a wonderful knife i watched that last night it's a it was a very fun movie it was very cheesy but like on purpose in most parts but there's just like this one line but i remember sitting in the theater and i was just like don't say that don't do that but yeah this is one of those that has just like really really fucking good one-liner just two quotes from the end that were like making me cry it's when Robin is on the phone with Finney and he says, I've been with you this whole time. I <laughs> the shake in your voice. <laughs> I started crying again. Um, and then at the end of the call, he's telling him like, this was the last call, Finn. It's up to you now. I'm not okay. Got it. <laughs> I'm not okay. Someone help me. <laughs> the ending song that plays, like the, the song in the score at the end of the movie, always, my brain always tr- gets tricked into thinking it's going to be time like Hans Zimmer time from Inception. It obviously isn't. Very similar vibe though. Incredible, incredible music in this movie. The dad suddenly being so sorry, like, oh my God, I cannot believe I abused you. I didn't realize I'd be so upset if somebody else did it. Like eat shit. Literally, I one of the letterbox reviews that I liked like the first time I watched it was someone being like, I hope Finn goes home and beats his dad's ass. And I was like, yes. Um, I love your first review of this, by the way. I don't remember it. Rip Irving Thalberg, you would have loved Ethan Hawke's unnecessary career commitment to Bloomhouse. I totally forgot that I'd ever had like a review for this movie up because we never watched it before. On that note, we're going to wrap up this week's episode. Thank you for joining us for The Black Phone and also a mini Five Nights at Freddy's review. Next week, we are going to be starting our 
winter episodes. So we have four wintry, Christmassy horror movies lined up for the month of December. In the meantime, you can find us on Linktree. Our Linktree is WYFSM. On the Linktree, you will find links to all of our socials, as well as everywhere that you can listen to the show. And we will see you guys next week to start the December Winter Horror Marathon. Bye! Bye!